Well, are you ready for Christmas? All right, good. It's a mere 15 days away, and if you follow Michael Morris on social media, I'm sure he will tell you how many hours until Christmas. Uh, Michael, be prepared. You may just blow up in social media fame. I wonder how you will assess whether or not you're prepared for Christmas. Okay. As you think about the question, am I ready to celebrate Christmas? What are the conditions that you feel like I need to do this or this needs to happen in order for me to say, yes, I'm ready for Christmas? Is it when the shopping is done? Is it when the schedule slows down? Is it when the travel is over? And while each one of these considerations is uh, their, their real consideration, I wonder if Christians, there isn't something more that we should be preparing ourselves for. And throughout church history, the Advent season has, been, has served Christians to help answer the question, am I ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus? Advent comes from the Latin word which means coming or arrival. It was a time for Christians to reflect on the coming, the first coming of God the Son, Jesus the Christ. And in that reflection, the season of waiting and remembering, Christians also began to realize we ourselves are in an advent, waiting for the return of Jesus. And yet in our day, Advent, the season has fallen on hard times. The currents of consumerism, the frantic busyness position, the season of Advent, this time of deliberately waiting, deliberately pausing, reflecting, longing, slowing down. It's sort of been relegated to a waste of time. And yet here at Covenant Life, we believe that there's purpose in the remembering. That there's good for our souls in the reflecting, in the longing, in the slowing down, in the waiting. And so every Christmas season, we pause, stepping out of sermon series in order to preach a series given completely to the season of Advent. The aim that the Lord would use these sermons to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. And to remember that when we slow down and pause and reflect and consider and put our, ourselves in a position of longing for more of Jesus, that those are moments that aren't wasted. Those are moments that are pregnant with wonder and glory and beauty Enjoy. And so, as we think about our time in God's Word this morning, I'd ask you to pray with me as we begin. Our Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray once again, coming not out of mere habit or custom, but asking genuinely from our hearts that you would help us 
I need your help as preacher that I might decrease so that Christ would increase. We need your help as people that we would have ears to hear, that we would not let words merely go in and out. We would not be distracted by other things, but that you would teach us just what we need to know, that you would speak to us just what we need to hear. And so would you take this sermon and would you showcase the brilliance of your glory? I pray that our hearts would long more than anything else today is to just encounter and meet with you, the living God. And so would you use this service, would you use this sermon to facilitate such a meeting? And may we walk away different, forever changed, I pray. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen. Well, if you were here last week, perhaps you're a little perplexed because I just made the statement that we preach Advent sermons in order to prepare our hearts to wait for and to behold the supreme treasure, Jesus himself. And yet Bob stands up here last week and preaches a scandalous sermon about such a sin-laden and perverted and broken moment in the history of God's people. And you're thinking, wait a minute, how is this preparing me for the coming of Jesus? And if you've read ahead, then perhaps you're thinking, uh, last week we talked about Tamar, who at one point dressed up like a prostitute, this week, we talk about Rahab, who the Bible, the only noun adjective given to describe her is that she was a harlot. She was a prostitute. And so, Justin, it sounds good, the longing of Advent, the desire that you have, and yet you preach sermons that don't seem to connect with that reality. How are these sermons preparing us for Christmas? Well, I'm glad you asked. The genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus that we've heard read over the last two weeks, if you show up for the next two weeks, we will hear it read again. That genealogy does something revolutionary. It would have been, and perhaps it wasn't revolutionary to you as you heard, it would have been revolutionary to the ears of the original audience. And one of the most revolutionary things that this genealogy does in Matthew chapter 1 is it includes five women. A king's genealogy wasn't merely a record of who he was related to. It was a lineage of his authority and the legitimacy of his rule. And so for Matthew to include the names of women in a time and in a culture that made little provision for women to have authority, this would have not only been unheard of, it would have been unsettling. It would have been disturbing. It would have potentially alienated his original audience from even the message that he was trying to get across. So the question then is, why do it? And I believe the reason that Matthew includes these women in this genealogy is because it throws out all preconceived notions about this king. This king, his throne is a manger. His heralds are shepherds. His parents are homeless and poor. His court is a zoo of livestock. 
and his royal lineage, that which is giving legitimacy to his reign and rule includes an abandoned widow, a prostitute, a widowed immigrant, a victim of rape and adultery, and a young virgin. Each of those women, apart from Mary, were not a part of God's covenant people. They were Gentiles, four of the five. And each of these women have a powerful story that really do represent the longings for this different kind of king. And it shapes our anticipation of how this king, far different from every other earthly king, this king will satisfy those longings. And so there's this impulse that we all have to skip over either genealogies or to skip over the shadier parts of this lineage, particularly the parts that include grievous sexual sin. And yet this advent, we are deciding as a church to not look away from that. We are deciding as a church to look headlong into the brokenness of this lineage. And when we look headlong into the broken, brokenness of this lineage, I think what we realize is that Jesus came from a lineage of shameful brokenness to redeem a people of shameful brokenness. And so I don't know what it is this morning that if you were to be honest about, you would almost want to weep in public because you're so ashamed of. I, I don't know what pocket of darkness of sexual sin you have in your past and in your closet that you're going, no one can ever know about that. In fact, maybe you think this is the real reason why I could ne never be accepted by a God like this. And so I just want you to know that if you have been bearing that, you don't have to with this king. He came from a lineage of shameful brokenness to redeem people with pasts, perhaps even with presence of shameful brokenness. If I could say it another way, you don't have a sin or a shame that runs deeper than this king's redemption. And so whatever it is that causes you shame, from sin, abuse, painful memories, this one, born in a manger, understands. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The hope of Christmas is that this king came to redeem all that is broken. And so there's a reason that we every week are going to read through the genealogy not because we forgot that we did it the week before. We actually remember that we did. The reason is because every time you hear the genealogy of Jesus read in Matthew's account, 
Like, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by three realities. Number one, that God extends his grace to Gentiles, that though, to those who were not a part of his covenant people. And if you're not Jewish this morning, that's good news for you. Number two, that God overcomes the effects of sin and shame as he works out his purposes. And number three, that God keeps his promises in ways that we could never anticipate. So I pray that as you hear these names, as you remember this genealogy, you wouldn't think, ah, it makes sense, this kind of king coming from this perfect lineage. No. He extends his grace to those outside of his covenant people. He overcomes the effects of sin and shame as he works out his purposes. And he keeps his promises in ways that we could never anticipate. And all of that brings us to the second woman mentioned in this lineage, Rahab. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua is the sixth book in the Old Testament. So as you're going there, we're in the second chapter. So maybe just understand a little bit of the context in order to make sense as to what's happening in Joshua chapter 2. We have just walked through the book of Exodus as a church family. And in that, we've seen how God has, the book began with his people in Egypt serving as slaves to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. And the whole book walks us through just God's miraculous deliverance of bringing his people out of a terrible slavery in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, they stop at Mount Sinai, all the while wandering in the wilderness, and now they are on the brink of crossing the Jordan River to enter into the land that God had promised to them back in Genesis, a promise that he made to Abraham. One generation has passed away, and now this second generation is but steps away from entering into the land. Moses is no longer leading the people. Joshua is leading the people. And while it all sounds good, you would just think they just run across or swim across and get across the Jordan River, there's a problem. There are scary and wicked and dangerous people that are in that land and they don't want to lose that land. And so what's the best way to enter? And this is where we pick up in our passage in Joshua chapter 2 to better understand the story. Four movements based around Rahab that I trust will help us as we work through our passage. The first one would just be Rahab's situation. And we'll see this in verses 1 through 7. So this is the situation that Rahab finds herself in. Listen to the word of the Lord in verse 1. Now, then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Joshua sends two men to serve as spies to scope out the land and its inhabitants. So they're on the other side of the Jordan. He sends two. They're to go. They're going to go into the land of Canaan, but specifically they're to go to 
the city of Jericho, this fortified city. And scope out Jericho and let's, let's begin there. Well, just this idea of a spy mission reminds us of another spy mission in Numbers chapter 13. When Moses sends out 12 to check the land that needed to be conquered, 10 of those 12 return and they say, there's no way in the world we should go into that land. I mean, they are like giants in that land. We are like grasshoppers. This is not good. They will kill us. They will take our wives and our children. But two of the 12, this Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, let's take the land. Like, God is with us. And so let's take the land. It looks improbable. But with God, it's possible. Well, the people push back. Moses doesn't lead them to go, and God punishes his people for lacking faith. Part of that punishment is that none of that current generation would enter into the promised land because it was, it was to be a land that they were to enter into by faith. None of that generation except two, Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua sends two spies over to check the land of Canaan. And right away in verse 1, we're introduced to Rahab, whom the Bible calls a harlot, a prostitute. And so many scholars believe that the spies would go to this, to her house, for lodging, not for sexual reasons, but her house would serve as almost an Airbnb of sorts. Passerbys would pass in and out. They could lodge there. They could gather information. They could fly under the radar so as to not be noticed. Like, ah, oh, Rahab never has people in her home. Well, no, this place would have been a place where, in many ways, uh, some commentators would say it was like a saloon in the days of Western. So Rahab's saloon was open. The text continues, beginning in verse 2. Moses, my servant... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at chapter 1. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who, you, who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where, they, where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the, the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gates." Joshua sent two men over as spies to survey the land. And contrary to their best attempt, the same day they go over, they are busted. Maybe the best line that I read all week in my study was a commentator who said this about these two spies. As agents of stealth... These men were singularly ineffective. <laughs> Two
two spies go over, literally, day of, they're busted. And so the king then sends orders to Rahab to turn over the men who, again, came not merely because they were passing by, came because they were scouting out the land to take it over. This would have been an act of treason against the king and against the city of Jericho, harboring future enemies. And the text tells us that Rahab hid the men and then told those who were looking for the men that they went out of the city gates and if they would pursue them quickly, then they could still catch them. At this point, I think it would be really easy to chase the ethical considerations of Rahab's actions. I think what almost all people would agree with is that Rahab lies in this situation. She lies. And yet if we were to flip over and we were to keep reading our Bibles, we would get to the book of Hebrews and we would get to the book of James. And in two places, Rahab is commended and I want to be clear, she's commended and she's celebrated not because of her sin, not because she lied. She's commended and celebrated because of her faith. More on that in a moment. And then the narrative catches us up on the details of their hiding. She actually had taken them upstairs to the roof. We'll learn that Rahab's house was in the wall. And so she's on uh, the... The spies are on top of the wall, on her roof, hiding under stalks of flax. It's interesting, the whole first seven verses of Joshua chapter 2, it's, it's written in the Hebrew, it's very choppy. This, 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 this. And it's as if the author is wanting to get us to a certain point, but that certain point isn't found in verses 1 through 7. No, that's the situation. That certain point is found in our next section. Section number two, Rahab's faith. Rahab's faith. We see this in verses 8 through 14. Listen to the account. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us, and all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan in Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about that when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
I just think it's glorious. We walk through the book of Exodus and this refrain that we hear over and over is, I am going to act this way so that Egypt will know. And I'm going to act this way so that Pharaoh will know. And I'm going to act this way so that all the peoples on the earth will know. And in Joshua chapter two, what do we find? We find the Canaanites have heard. They have heard about the miraculous work of the Lord and they are afraid. Like fear has melted away their courage. Let us see anyone except the people of that God. Because that God fights for his people. And so why has Rahab done all that she's done? Why hide the spies? Why? We learn the main aspect of this in, in this section. And it unfolds to us in this conversation that Rahab has with these spies before they go to sleep. The people of her land have heard the stories, but she does something more with the news. It's not just, yes, I've heard about God and I'm afraid. It's, yes, I've heard about God and I am fearful. And what I've heard, plus my fear, leads me to faith. It leads her to faith. She takes this news to heart and she believes. She turns her backs on her back on the Canaanite gods. And she says, "I believe that your God is the God of heaven and over everything else in this earth." Like I believe him. Here's a Canaanite woman living in Jericho who makes a profession of faith in the one true living God. And here's the thing. She only has limited knowledge of him. She knows that he's all powerful. That is all she knows. He's all powerful. He deals with his enemies in a certain way. And that leads her to faith. Hebrews 11 verse 31 tells us, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab is commended for the presence of her faith. She doesn't have much to go, to go on from. She hasn't, she doesn't, she, she would have been a terrible theology teacher in her day. But what she does know is enough to lead her to believe. She's even thinking about this. Kids, as you grow up and you hear stories and you read the Bible and you sit through sermons, and perhaps you're tempted to think, I don't know enough. I'll never know as much as him or her my family, and I can't, I can't have faith until I know more. Knowledge is your friend. Knowing right truths about God is a must, but you don't have to know everything about Him. In fact, you will live your whole life and not even come close to knowing everything about this God. And so I just want you to know, 
you can have faith in him with just enough of the right knowledge about him. The better we can know God, the we give ourselves to that pursuit because it's a worthwhile pursuit. But Rahab's faith, it teaches you and I something this morning. It's not the quantity or the measure of our faith that saves us, but rather the right object of our faith that saves us. I, I, I read the story, and then I look at Hebrews 11, and I think, God commends her for faith. Her faith was weak. And yet God honors weak faith of weary sinners. Hmm. Praise be to God. Because if he didn't, you wouldn't belong to him. And neither would I. Rahab doesn't know a lot. Her track record is worse than her theology level at the time. Her reputation, how she's living. And yet Rahab doesn't say, I want to believe, but I need to clean myself up before I believe. No, Rahab says, I believe your God is this and does this. And Rahab is changed. Rahab's situation leads to a clear picture of Rahab's faith. And next, let's consider Rahab's rescue. Rahab's rescue, verses 15 through 24. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. Remember, the gates are shut. They're not going in and out. If you would have opened the gate, everyone would have seen them go out. So there has to be another way, but they're up on a wall. So she lets them down by a rope. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then afterward you may go on your way. The man said to her, we shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window, in the window through which you let us down. And gather to yourself into the house of your father and your mother and your brothers and all of your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which, we have, that which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, let it be so. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country, remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but they had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country, crossed over, came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, surely the Lord has given all of the land into our hands. And moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. A fascinating Fascinating unfolding of events. 
these spies, not a ton of intel, but praise be to God, they met Rahab. If you were to read Joshua chapter 1, and then you were to just skip over Joshua chapter 2 and pick up in Joshua chapter 3, what you would find is that the story almost seamlessly continues. And so as, as I've done that this week, I've just come back and begin to think, why in the world? Like nothing about the flow of this story changes with the inclusion of chapter 2. But the fact that Joshua puts it into the, the story jumps off the page at us. Like, why would God do this? Rahab was an active participant in the iniquity that surrounded her. Like, the Lord was sending spies to go in to say, Hey, we need to know how best to take this people because this people, they are a wicked people. Like they have set themselves against the Lord and his plans. And so it wasn't that God was being unfair. It's God was being just. He was giving them what they rightly deserve for their rebellion against him. Rahab did not deserve any different treatment than anyone else. She deserved the fate that Jericho got. And she's not only spared, but she's listed as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11. Like she personifies the hope of redemption. Not just for those who witness her salvation, but for those who struggle and wonder and doubt. Could I ever really be loved by this God? Her unworthiness only makes God's love more incredible. And her unworthiness only makes us realize that God's love is actually possible for the likes of you and me. And so think about this story in light of Christmas. Like we need Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus. The church needs this in the genealogy. Because Rahab reminds us that it's not the beauty of the bride that makes her beautiful, but Christ's, loves make, Christ's love makes her what she is not. From brokenness, he came to bring redemption to that which is broken. Just thinking about this this week, just thinking Rahab deserved judgment. Like, we won't understand the glory of the baby in the manger if we don't understand that judgment is a part of the Christmas story. Like, Christmas itself is a declaration of war on everything that is dark, everything that enslaves. And we can understand this better because of God's saving work in Rahab's life. Like Christmas is not just about this battle that Israel had with Jericho. No, it's about the war between God himself and his arch enemy, Satan, who seeks to enslave humanity. And God wins this war by coming and dying for his enemies. 
And if you've never read Revelation chapter 12 with this kind of Christmas war in mind, I would encourage you to do it. Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 4. His tail, the dragon's tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Like the baby in the manger that's coming from a lineage of brokenness, it's all pointing us to this, this divine rescue mission that God has set into motion to rescue his people from Satan, from sin, and from themselves. And so Christmas is an invitation of rescue for all Rahabs. And surely it wasn't lost on you. The scarlet cord that would hang from the window that would mark her house as safe. When entrapped and enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, Israel would sacrifice the Passover lamb and spread its blood on the doorpost. And so the crimson stain of the blood would mark the house of those who had faith. And the angel of death would pass over that house. The crimson cord hanging from the window is a provision of grace that there would be a passing over of those who deserve wrath, but yet because of faith, they get grace. Consider this gracious rescue. And if we were to back the story up far enough, I mean, you can begin to look and go, why in the world did God's people go the route that they did? Like if, if Joshua chapter one could, could have just flowed into Joshua chapter three, why do we need Joshua chapter two? And so I even spent time this week just thinking, uh, like, why did they go here? And, and crossing the Jordan, it would have been easier if they would have crossed it at a different place, but why did they cross it here? And why did they begin in these parts? And why go to Jericho first? I mean, Judgment was coming. So why go to Jericho? Why let anyone know in Jericho that judgment was coming? I just began to think, is God the kind of God that would rewrite history and would so leverage history and leverage all of his resources so that his kingdom would be opened up to one person from among a people who didn't deserve his grace? And I just began to think, God, you opened up your fountain of mercy and grace for the likes of me. And God does not have a price tag that he's not willing to expend in order to bring his children home. Rahab is known because God leveraged his resources to bring her to himself. <laughs> Like God lavishly expends. And he gets the glory. And Rahab and his people today get the utmost good. Like this is the kind of spender our God is. And it's fine for us to talk about Rahab's sin. But at some point the story finds us all in our sin. And so what do you do with your sin? 
for the judgment that you rightly deserve? Like what, what are you, like what's your hope from escaping that judgment? There is one way to be rescued from the judgment that you deserve for your sin. And there's no other way. And if you go to your grave without that rescue, you will face the just penalty for what you deserve for your sin of rebelling against the God who created you, to whom you are accountable for, and to whom you will one day give an account to. Christmas isn't merely about this baby that was born. It was about a baby that was born to live a life that we couldn't live and to die a death that we will die if we do not give up our life of rebellion and trust in the work of Jesus alone. Romans 1 and 2 makes this really clear for all of us. Every person has the law of God written on their hearts. And so whether they ever read a Bible or come to a church service, they are aware. We are all aware of good and evil. And the Bible says that we have a condition where we can't help but choose evil. Praise be to God, we don't choose evil all the time and to the maximum extent, but we all choose evil. And that makes us guilty before a holy God. And every religion in the world, except for Christianity, says that if you want to be made right with God, then you have to earn it. Christianity is the only religion on the planet for bad people. Because every other religion says, be good. And the baby in the manger is a reminder for us, with the lineage that he had, like we can't be good enough. What we need required him to come. And so the only remedy to this problem of sin is a work of God on the sinner's behalf. And so Christianity is not a faith about what we can do to reach God, but what he has done to reach us. We cannot earn the grace of God with our works. No, we need his works for us. We break the law, he kept the law. And as the perfect law keeper, he died the death that we deserve to die in our sin. And the category of sinner is clearly dreadful because to be in this category is to be completely opposed to all that God is and to be the recipient of God's righteous anger. He is an eternal God. Therefore, the the punishment for a sin against him will be an eternal punishment in a literal place of torment called hell. And if we don't widen the lens out far enough to understand why he has come, then we miss the purpose of the brokenness and the lineage, and we miss the purpose of Christmas, hope and joy and peace. So if you're not a Christian this morning, it is not an act of humility to think, yeah, you know what, my sin is bigger than God. Like that is you adding sin to your sin. So I would just encourage you, throw down whatever arms that you are seeking to bear, thinking that someday you're going to wield enough good works that he's going to be pleased with you. Like he's pleased with his son. And his son's righteousness can be yours if you will drop all your efforts at being righteous and turn from your sin and trust in him alone. I would plead with you. 
the shameful brokenness that you carry, you don't have to carry it anymore. He has come to redeem it. But you, by faith, must receive it. And so if you're not a Christian and you want to talk to someone, please talk to any of us in here. And perhaps you're a Christian, or perhaps you even know if you're a Christian. Talk to any of us. It would be our joy. And even if you don't talk to us, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. And that brings us to the last section, Rahab's future. Rahab's future. If you were to flip over to Joshua chapter 6 and look down at verse 22, this is what we read. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out out of there, as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. I just assumed that she packed that room. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Her life is spared. Like God graciously spares Rahab's life. And not just that, I even read this. You keep reading the lineage of Jesus, and after Rahab, you keep going, and you realize that God didn't just spare her. God also grafted her in to be a part of his people. And she finds herself. Like one day, a young man named Salmon will show up. And Salmon is special because he descended from a woman named Tamar. And Salmon would love Rahab. And Salmon desired Rahab despite her story, and he took her to be his wife. And God had a plan to not merely redeem her and save her, but to give her a lover, someone who would treasure her the way that she hadn't been treasured for most of her life. She would give her, or he would give her a husband who reflected the love of God. And the deepest mystery of all was that God's purpose in that plan. Joshua had no idea who he was saving on that day. Because in saving the life of Rahab, he was saving the life of the whole world. Yes, even yours and mine. Because he was saving one of the great grandmothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was a prostitute who had no clue that she would be saved and grafted into the great, great lineage of Jesus. And hers is the story of Advent. Like all she knows that, is that God is just and he's going to destroy people who are opposed to him. And so scared and fearful and hopeless and despairing and frantic, the people of Jericho were all of those things. And yet Rahab, Rahab was that plus believing. Like I read this story and I just think, like God, God isn't here to destroy you. Like God is here to welcome you. 
and what she trusts on this day, she had no clue whether or not this God was going to be merciful. She knew he was powerful. She had no clue whether or not he was going to be merciful. And so she trusts that this God of all wrath is also full of all mercy. And she was right. This God is just as merciful as he is powerful. All of Israel, at the time that Matthew's genealogy is unfolding, all of Israel has not heard from God for 400 years. I would assume God's people were a lot like Rahab between chapter 2 and chapter 6. I've got the cord hanging in the window. Is that enough? Like, God, you've told us this throughout the prophets and the law and the writings. It's 400 years of silence. Is that enough? And then just think of the scene that plays out with the shepherds in Luke 2. The text says that they were afraid, afraid, and yet they hear in their fear, glory to God in the highest and peace. The story of Rahab and the story of Christmas and the season of Advent reminds us that he is just as merciful as he is powerful, and he's more merciful than he is dreadful to those who believe. Like Christmas confirms that there is a hope of mercy. And so I don't know what you're despairing of this morning. I don't know what despair you're carrying. I don't know how you may be melting in fear. But the hope of the Christmas message is that he is merciful. He's not just powerful. Praise be to God he is. He's most powerful. But he's also most merciful. And so what are the parts of your life that are full of shame? just brokenness from sin. Like, don't look away from that this morning. Don't look away from that this Advent season. Look at it, and then look unto Jesus, the one who has come from shameful brokenness to redeem shameful brokenness. Redemption isn't for those that are clean. It's not for those who don't really need it. No, it's for those who don't wait on the Lord and do the unthinkable like Tamar. No, it's for those who don't keep their word and turn to prostitutes and then who in their self-righteousness want to condemn others for sins that they too commit like Judah. No. Redemption is for those whose lifestyle runs contrary to God's plan for humanity and for sexuality and for those who lie like Rahab. So the good news of Advent, the good news of Christmas is there is a redemption that is available to you and I. With all of our host of brokenness and shame and skeletons in our closets. I promise that if the lineage of God, the Son, runs through these broken stories because of His grace, there is enough grace to cover your broken story too. See, the devil knows you by your name and calls you by your sin. And God knows you. He knows your sin. And he calls you by name. And so Christians, there is no other place for you to put your faith. And so stay the course.
And let's ensure that the grace that we have received, we hold out and commend to others this Advent season. And one of the graces that God has given his people in order to stay the course 